Well, this isn't live. <laughs> Can you imagine? Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hello. Our senior media reporter, Zoe Samuels. Hello. And on the buttons this week, our deputy editor, Josie Tutte. Hello. And later we'll be talking to Jamie Angus from the BBC about the problem with paywalls. If the only access to quality, independent or impartial news is via a paywall, I think that is a problem. Setting the agenda. There's nothing wrong with agenda-driven news per se, as long as people know what it is, where it's coming from. And the soggy middle. The pay model doesn't work for the kind of middle ground. It doesn't work for the sort of generalist soggy middle. But first to the week's topics, or should that be departures? Marcel Sydney's founder, David Nobey, to leave. Danny Bass resigns as CEO of IPG Media Brands. BuzzFeed boss Simon Querra is made redundant. Plus, Lad Bible is set to launch in Australia. So I guess we, we, we knew there would be exits from BuzzFeed, uh, and one of the first people to go was uh, Simon Carrera. Not unexpected because we knew there were going to be a number of redundancies mm. from BuzzFeed, but the, uh, the, the first editorial exit. Um, what do you think that says about the future structure? Well, that was a re- that's a really good question, and, and I guess when Simon announced his departure yesterday, I went, I don't even know who that we're going to talk to now from BuzzFeed, who's a representative of that brand in Australia anymore. It definitely suggests... globally, their, their boss of comms was made redundant as well. As well, exactly, uh, a couple, couple of weeks back when everything was first announced. So it feels as though, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm completely speculating here, but it feels as though they're moving towards more of a bureau as opposed to an established business with lots of different arms. The, the exit of Simon... Look, knowing Simon, I can probably see him going. I'll, I'll put my hand up here. If every if people are going to go down, I should probably go first. Potentially, I can see that he's he's kind of that guy that would really he's really backs the team that he works with and is really supportive of that team. So he probably said, "I'll I'll be one to go," and um and hopefully that that changes who has to go in the process. So he was general manager, but a journalist by background. Yes. So he was the founding editor of BuzzFeed Australia when it first landed here. And before that, he was actually at News Corp, I believe. He had a weird anecdote yesterday about being on the dunny when he first saw the job ad, uh, which had alligators on it and stuff, which is hilarious. But he's journalist by background and he's essentially built this business up to a 40-odd staff uh, Australian business it's actually got a really distinct voice in this market or, or it's perceived to have a really distinct voice in this market so he's been congratulated a lot this week for all his efforts in actually building the business as it currently exists in Australia but obviously a lot of people are really disheartened by that too they're going wow the person that literally brought this publisher uh, brought built this publisher up is no longer going to be there well what does that mean for commercial in Australia what does that mean for uh, you know their ad production team or their content production team native content production team what does that mean for the editorial team you know when you've lost the big person that that kept everything together I don't know it feels like the investment in Australia is not once what it was which is disappointing not surprising but disappointing which is something we've seen from a few of the kind of US brands isn't it you know sort of coming to Australia and then 
pulling back. We saw it with Huffington Post, for instance. Mm, we did, although they, they say that they're back under Verizon Media. But essentially, yes, that's exactly what happened. Certainly not resourced in the same way. No, though. definitely not resourced in the same way. And it, it kind of more operates as a, as a bureau just just like New York Times does in Australia. And it feels as though, and, and I don't know if this will happen with Vice as well, obviously they flagged Australian redundancies too, but by axing the, the, the top guy, it just doesn't feel like the investment's there. Whether or not that was just Simon's decision, he just did a, put his hand in for the rest of the team and there's every chance that he's done that and they will appoint someone in maybe a less a role that's not general manager but something to that effect further down the track, that's possible. But for me, it was a massive signal that, their investment in this market is very different to what we we had hoped it would be going forward. Well, look, I guess we're seeing investment coming into the market as well. We'll talk about Lab Bible in a second. We also seen uh, Crikey announcing new investment in journalists as well, thanks to sort of funding from the O'Reilly family and the Fairfax family. So it's not all bad news when it comes to funding of journalism at the moment either. No, it's definitely not. And I think what I've noticed particularly in the last couple of weeks is a lot of people are talking about the subscription models a lot more, uh, Crikey being one of them, you know, putting an investigative team behind their their current and existing model, which works on a subscription basis, you pay to, to, to view their content. What I would say the BuzzFeed stuff is, and, and perhaps Vice too, is shown is perhaps a change in the way, maybe native content and, and bringing in funding for editorial through native and branded content might not be working as well as it used to be or not, might not be bringing in the same amount of money as it used to be because it definitely feels as though the people that are succeeding at the moment are actually the ones getting the consumers to pay for content whereas the ones that are seen to be struggling more and more are the ones that are following an advertising-led model where they're creating you know, a, a small video with a major food client to, to produce some piece of content that will subtly get people to buy that brand. I don't know if it's working as well as it did. Sounds like something we might be talking about a little bit later in Potentially. The I know we are talking about Lab Bible and, and, <laughs> and that's a model that they use, but I'm really curious in light of the people that have suffered from redundancies of late whether that will work, but we can talk about that later. Well, let's talk about it now. Josie, um, <laughs> you're, you're from back in the UK. Your great rivals at Lad Bible <laughs> are coming to, uh, to Australia. So you, you know more than most of us about the Lad Bible brand. Yes. So for those of you that don't know, my previous role in the UK was a company called Jungle Creations, which is a social based publisher that essentially creates viral videos and gets brands to pay to be involved in those videos. Lad Bible are one of Jungle Creations biggest competitors and they Lad Bible now after buying Unilad, which it did recently after Unilad was struggling. Um, the combined businesses of Lad Bible and Unilad make it the biggest publisher on Facebook by quite a mile compared to any other publisher that is on Facebook, which is quite impressive. And the model, obviously, some of it is video based, but also it's taking other people's funny content, <laughs> aggregating it. Um, That's a kind word to use. Yes, I know the word used in our comment thread was was stealing. <laughs> yes, there has been a lot of issues in the past with copyright because a lot of these companies essentially just see what is going viral elsewhere and just essentially reuse it and push it to their millions and millions of followers and it's effective I'm not sure if it's exactly how you describe as legitimate but it's definitely something that has been working for them well look I guess Zoe you know the 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 sales pitch to agencies to advertisers is 
you know, we're we're talking to a hard to reach demographic. Do you think there will be a gap here in Australia for it? I don't know if there's going to be a gap or maybe there will be a gap because everyone else has had cost cuts and, and is struggling potentially. Yes, they definitely play in an area that maybe isn't done in the same way in Australia. So you can see that the appeal there, but again, this market is incredibly cluttered. There are so many digital publishers and so many youth or millennial or whatever you want to call them publishers that are trying to tap into that younger audience. I don't know how an advertiser is going to go, okay, we're going to give money to you. We're going to give money to junkie. We're going to give money to pedestrian. We're going to give money to, to vice. Like it just, I don't know how you split all that. And is the audience so sought after that you're going to invest all this money? I'm not sure. I think the problem that they might have is essentially their business model is entirely built on scale and massive, massive numbers. Now everyone knows that Australia doesn't actually have that many people in it where a lot, a lot of the reason these businesses are succeeding in the UK and America is because there is a lot of audience there's just a lot of eyeballs on their content I'm not sure if they're going to be able to get that here just because of a pure numbers game I remember when I was talking about when when we spoke about HuffPost before when they scale back but it was essentially they entered the market and and that was five or so years ago at, at a time that was it was perceived to be there's plenty of publishers they're all established everyone's made up their minds they're coming into a market now that has even more players than when someone like Huff posted to a market significantly smaller and I would be very surprised if you know and to be honest I actually know Lab Bible well it's come up through my feed plenty of times but is it worth investing in this local market because for ages I've just accepted that it's international content what's mm -hmm. going to make it so different in Australia that it's worth this investment well I suppose one question is if they're creating content then again it might not matter if it's made in Australia if it's global and outlook it might find an audience outside of Australia that's very true it just depends on how they create that content I know that uh, when BuzzFeed came to Australia they were able to create a really distinct as I said before distinct voice and Aussie content in the BuzzFeed tone that's going to be the challenge for Lad Bible they might be able to do it and it by default might attract other audiences but I think it's not going to be an easy task and everyone will be watching given the the cuts that we've seen the last few weeks and Josie the newsfeed apocalypse means it's harder for publishers now to get themselves found that's a bit of a challenge as well isn't it it is, but it is very interesting having worked in one of these companies to see how quickly they can adapt. People are always talking about being nimble and quick at changing things when things go wrong. These companies are genuinely doing that. They can change their the way that they do things in the matter of a day. If they see that the Facebook algorithm has changed, they will be changing their strategy straight away. It is quite impressive, but at the same time, if you're just endlessly chasing Facebook's tail, it does get a bit exhausting. And I do wonder how sustainable it is in, in the long term. Next, Nobby is no more. So Marcel Sydney had an announcement this week with the agency's local founder, David Nobay, known to most in the creative industry as Nobby, set to depart after four years. Um, Abs, a little bit of history repeating itself here really because before that it was the founding uh, I think there was a big grand title like creative chairman or something uh, again the, the the local operation of Droga 5 um, Sydney um, which which had never quite made it onto the map um, what's the story with Marcel so Marcel was founded around or the Sydney operation was founded around four years ago I'm pretty sure uh and and nobe uh, or nobby 
set that up and he brought across Tiger Beer as their founding client and Tiger Beer was also Droga 5's last standing client when it kind of fell to pieces. Uh, so so Nobby brought Tiger across and then started Marcel Sydney and, you know, in the, in the recent couple of years it's certainly been – it's part of the publicist group uh, but it's certainly been – an agency that has struggled. Uh, Tiger Beer was definitely its biggest client. It now has clients that include Maggi, like the Maggi Noodles. It won a spot on Foxtel's roster last year, Tinder, and then this year it won Rio Tinto in a in a partnership with Zenith. So it also comes after a, a bit of change for Marcel Sydney. So in August last year, its CEO, Gavin Levinson, also departed the agency and Tiger Beer, its biggest client, moved to Marcel in Singapore. They were looking for a more local agency. So it kind of left Marcel, you know, without a CEO. Its biggest client had gone. At the time, there was speculation that Nobby was also going to go to. And that obviously has happened now. They haven't announced, you know, any sort of replacement or, or anything like that, obviously with the CEO gone and, and, and David gone. But, you know, the, the word is that he has gone to sort of set up another indie shop with a film production company, Fin Designs and Effects. And according to Campaign Brief, who published the story, um, it's going to be imperfect circle. So do we think that uh, they'll take Tiger Bear with them? Nope, Tiger Beer is long gone, I think, Tim. <laughs> and um, just looking back on Marcel, two questions. Firstly, I'll ask you, like we've seen a lot of um, consolidation in the industry, a lot of you know brands merging. Could we perhaps just see publicists close it in this market? I think it's certainly an agency that has a big question mark hanging over its head. To me, it doesn't seem super sustainable as as a standalone agency so I think the answer would either be that it gets merged or it gets brought in to become a division of Saatchi and Saatchi or or an agency like that Uh, but I can't imagine sort of just shutting down an agency I think it would be absorbed by another one and the other question I had for you is I I was just thinking about Marcel I I couldn't think of a single piece of work that was memorable can you No, I think I think the the memorable part is what what I would have to say no with there. I can think of, you know, they they did that um that ink campaign with Tiger Beer, but you know, a lot of that is it's not even though it's kind of spearheaded in Australia, it's not really very local. Yes, so Yes, yeah, that one ran in Singapore, didn't it? And yeah, you know, as as far as I this can This was the ink made from pollution or correct, something. Correct. Yeah, and as far as I can remember in Awards terms of Awards fodder. <laughs> Yes. Um, as far as I can remember in terms of the work that they've done, it's it's always Tiger Beer work. Next, Danny Bass moves on. So finally, what seems to become a bit of a resignation special, um, Danny Bass has announced that he's going to be departing as CEO of IPG Media Brands. Um, I guess one of the most well-known players in the media agency landscape as, as, as boss of one of the big media sides, one of the big holding companies um, before media brands over at WPP and before that back in the day at News Corp. Um, so it looks like a very... You know, sometimes exits are just like a, a bit messy and everyone's a bit cross. 
this one seems quite nice. You know, it looks like there's he's going to be around for a while. Everyone's saying very nice things. Um, what's the story? There's two very different things that I've heard. Uh, the first being, oh, he's probably going to take a job at WPP, maybe as CEO or something like that. The other is... Which is vacant at the moment. Which is vacant at the moment, exactly. Mike Conaghan's been gone for a while now. The other is, well, IPG is underperforming and so without him, without throwing him out, he's gone. That's two very, very different stories. He'd probably have to look at the client list and Abs would probably have a better idea of the mm. two. But I've gone from at, at the beginning of the day being like I'm waiting for an announcement of his new gig to that. And I think one of the interesting things, particularly with all the agency bosses that have left, thinking Simon Ryan and Paul Brooks as well, who were uh, – Simon Ryan was, was the CEO of Dentsu Aegis Network, Paul Brooks the CEO of Cara, which sat within it – you kind of don't know what exactly happens until the next job comes and you can work out if they went, I've taken this as a step up or I've walked before I was pushed and I'm going into this role. You can tend to tell where they once they land, where they land. And uh, sort of made two interesting points there. So, you know, first the WPP CEO, I think, that there are a couple of candidates to me and to people that I've spoken to as well that sort of seem more fitting and in the running for that for that um, role. I think Joe Pollard definitely would be one, and I think if they did, so Joe Pollard, ex Telstra, ran um, uh, the, one of the publicist creative agencies for a while as well. And then you know I think as well if if they did get someone media to media agency side to come in and be their CEO I think that would be a very heavy media focus for WPP and I don't quite know if it would be the right thing. See that is the problem for the role isn't it for the WPP role is finding someone who's got both creative agency experience and media agency experience. Yeah so I so I'm, I'm I think you know and, and as well I think Mark Lowellback probably would would be a stronger internal candidate if they did want someone with a stronger media agency background but I don't necessarily think that that would be the right move to make but uh, to your second point there Zoe about IPG and, and how it's performing I sort of um, stumbled across some some data the last four-year data for for the for the media holding groups and you know you've got group M up the top that takes takes a, a larger percentage of of the market share and then you know you've got media brands that sort of right down near the bottom with only 10.5% of media share which is actually was quite surprising was quite surprising to me especially when you think about UM who last year had a really really good year and won clients like AGL UM being one of the media brands agencies yep um AGL Nestle which um essentially dumped Wavemaker for UM Heineken um and uh, and the government too uh but also within IPG agencies you've got initiative reprise and ensemble as well and initiative reprise and ensemble probably don't do as well as um but while it might seem like ipg is doing really really well when you read kind of all the stories and all the clients that um have won they actually don't take up a whole lot of the market share when you think about the media agency holding groups well the other interesting thing at the moment is the number of vacancies there have been recently obviously we talked about um wpp for quite a while, Dentsu was vacant as well. Yeah, yeah, it was it was vacant for quite a while until obviously um, Henry Tasia, ex Amazon, 
Uh, and ironically, IPG Media Brands back in the day. There you go. Full circle. So yeah, and then um, when when Paul Brooks left Cara, they didn't actually directly replace the CEO role, um, and instead they came up with with a national MD role. So there certainly have been a lot of moves within the media agency uh, agency land. I wonder, and I, I think it was in our news, uh, Danny Bass was talking maybe a few weeks back about the restructuring of the agency model. I do wonder if these exits have anything to do with struggling top-line figures and, and people going, I'm one, I'm getting out before, you know, everything goes south, or they're going, this is just not a sustainable model as is, or, or their, their bosses are going, this isn't working, you're gone. It seems like there's a bigger piece at play here in all of this with what the, the media agency model looks like going forward and whether or not it's actually working as well as it's being perceived to be working. Yeah, look, and I think the thing you've got to sort of throw into it is Danny's very smart. Um you know, he has some quite interesting just thoughts about structures and stuff. Definitely. I, I talked on the podcast about going and see him a couple of weeks ago. We were, you know, when he was talking to me then, and it was, it was a good thought. I said, "I'm going to steal it," and they said, "No, no, you can use it on the record." It was just that thing that all of the media agency groups, as Danny put it, have been through this sort of period of mourning, where they've had to uh, face the loss of this period, this grief period, the loss of their profits that will never be the way they were. So you have to get through it and get out the other side. So it might be that he's also, you know, been, been, been a, you know, sort of part of that process. So it's time. Um, one of the people I was talking to suggested that, um, you know, Danny, as I say, back in the day, uh, New School, so he's been media sales side. Um, so that could be one place we might see him pop up. But the, the other thing they suggested was... Um, He's probably the sort of people the consultancies would be very keen on mm. because he's very strong digitally as well. Definitely. Oh, look, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he's a valuable asset to whoever takes him on next. It's just a matter of has he planned what that next is or is he just hanging around for a bit until something comes up? I know that we talk a lot about the unemployed execs wall and, and the jobs wall and, and we don't make it up when we say there's not that many jobs and there's a lot of execs. So I'm hoping that Danny's got a plan and, and, and a place to slot in. Uh, it would be good to, to not have his name on the wall for a long time. Well, next, <laughs> Zoe and Josie talk to the man from the BBC. And joining us now on the Mumbrella cast is Jamie Angus, director of BBC World Service Group. Jamie leads the BBC's global news services, including BBC World Service, BBC World News and BBC.com, as well as BBC Monitoring. Welcome, Jamie. Hello. Hi. Also in the room with us is Zoe Samuels, our senior media reporter. Hello. Now, Jamie, I want to start with the results of a BBC Global News report that came out in January this year. Um, It revealed that 74% of Australians believe that there's been an increase in agenda-driven news over the last five years, and 59% are now worried that this will lead to a loss of impartial journalism and credible news. First of all, were you surprised by the findings? Yeah, we were a bit. I mean, we wanted to take a deeper look into the Australian market because we could see that there had been a lot of media consolidation obviously particularly the Fairfax 9 deal but also more generally and that is part of a global trend towards media consolidation not unique to Australia but we were really keen to understand a bit better what our audience's concerns uh, here were 
And it's interesting that there is a very, very clear, you know, that th- three quarters of Australians think there's been a rise in agenda-driven news, but also the research brought out the sort of levels of concern about what America has become, what's happening in the American media market, and this sense that Australia could be heading in the same direction, particularly around agenda-driven news and access to independent and diverse media, media ownership um, or media across different form models of ownership. So it... it, it it played into our understanding of the Australian market, but I just think it goes to demonstrate that Australia is not immune from this global trend, which is towards more polarised forms of media, and a general level of concern that that somehow diminishes you know, the integrity of a media market where you want to have lots of diverse and different models of media ownership. Now, the report said that Australians believe this to be true. Do you actually believe it to be true or do you think it's more of a sort of an, an idea that has risen in the cultural consciousness and, that, and therefore Australians are more aware of the idea? That's a very good question. I think that um, you can't help but come to Australia and feel this is a wonderfully vibrant and diverse media market with some really kind of punchy, pugnacious, opinionated, forceful range of me- media you know, views, news and views. And in that sense, it's a kind of mature media market. But I think what people are expressing when they express these concerns is a worry that the, the, the global trends around fake news, around consolidation in media ownership, have not left Australia un- unaffected. You know, Australia is seeing the same things in its media market that, 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 that others are. And, you know, um, that, you know, you want to have a, a, a mixed media uh, mixed media economy where there is room for agenda-driven news. There's nothing wrong with agenda-driven news per se, as long as people know what it is, where it's coming from, and people have actively chosen to choose, you know, consume that as a mixture of different media sources. I think what audiences are worried about is that if they're being pushed agenda-driven news without knowing where it's coming from, and so I think one of the things globally that we're really concerned about is the rise of very lavishly state-funded international broadcasters like Russia Today and uh, CGTN, the Chinese state TV, for example, where uh, these are these broadcasters do have an agenda, but they're not particularly open about what that agenda is. Mm-hmm. And I worry that younger audiences in particular will sort of choose to consume across the piece without necessarily understanding the values that stand behind all of these organisations. Do you think it's philosophically possible for a news organisation to have absolutely no agenda at all? Probably not, but I think that the BBC wants to, we want to be quite open about what we're here for. You know, the BBC, I think, has an almost unique proposition, which is we're owned by everybody in the UK at some level because Mm -hmm. of the universal funding mechanism. But also we're just, we're about uh, access to impartial, independent international news for audiences wherever they be in the globe, in English and multiple languages, and particularly for audiences who have no access to other Choices were a kind of an important lifeline service for for audiences in you know Myanmar or parts of the Horn of Africa or you know where, wherever you might choose from, and we're very proud of the independence that we have, and we think we can explain and demonstrate why we're independent. So that's partly because the BBC has you know it has an eleven year funding term. It's in, you know its organisation is enshrined in a royal charter that protects it from political and editorial independence. It has an open and accountable pr- complaints procedure. We admit when we get things wrong. You know these are the kind of features of a much more independent PSB that we think we can actually point to and allows us to make the case for BBC editorial independence. I mean, clearly, at some level, it is a it is a, um, a public service broadcaster from a, you know, mature Western democracy and, you know, the world's sixth largest economy. So it has, 
you know, the features that you might expect from that kind of broadcaster. But we want to call out more this idea that, oh, well, all sources of news are a bit fake and a bit biased, and therefore mm. it doesn't really matter which one you pick. And I think that's part of the reason we wanted to look at the research, is to encourage people to think about, I know it does matter if you consume news from CGTN about Africa, it won't give you an entirely fair assessment of China's agenda in Africa. And it certainly won't give you a fair assessment of what's happening inside China, because one of the things about CGTN, just with Russia today, it doesn't report impartially on its home patch. And I think, just to go back to the point I was making before, one of the things that's distinctive about the BBC is nobody could say that we didn't report independently on what's happening in the UK. We really, really do. And audiences, you know, particularly around Brexit, for example, turn to us for that. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. And I was the um, reporter that wrote up this BBC study and I thought it came in an interesting time and maybe it's just very different markets where we're in Australia with the ABC where without a chairman and a managing director, there's been massive criticism of the government, Im- influencing government in Australia. And, and I obviously pointed out uh, in my story that, you know, people were concerned about commercial objectives, which have been around forever. Most news organisations have commercial objectives, but it's almost as though there's a whole trust issue in Australia that maybe has come as a result of a, a lack of trust in our own public broadcaster. It seems like you guys have a very similar, uh, very different uh, position in, in the UK. Well, just to be clear, I mean, we see some great commercial news providers here in Australia, mm. alongside a great PSB in the ABC. And, you know, my sort of, you know, my wish would be that ever that we find the right model in Australia, as arguably we have found the UK for a, for a public service broadcaster to coexist with a functional commercial news market. And I think that, you know, where, and I sort of talked to the Australian about this earlier this week, and, you know, they, they sort of wrote, wrote, wrote the story up slightly differently to the way I would have said it. But I, I my feelings were that, um, that, that, the problems in commercial with the commercial news model are not to do with the existence of a of a public service broadcaster, right? Because if you look at if you look at the the levels of traffic and online news traffic that have grown over the five to ten years, it's a huge growth story for all publishers, including commercial publishers and PSBs. So it's not the case that the public service broadcaster cannibalizing the market for page impressions is what's causing the problem. That's not what's causing the problem. The problem is that the the model is broken <clears throat> that rewards quality news publishers commercially for publishing. And that uh, most of that is to do with the rise of very large tech platforms, so the Facebooks and Googles of this world, mm-hmm. and the, that dysfunction in the commercial news market. And I'm really concerned that you end up in a position where, in a country like Australia, you end up um, you, you end up hobbling and, and in the long term destroying a valued public service broadcaster to fix a problem that that won't be fixed by doing that. So you then end up with no decent PSB and you still have a dysfunctional commercial news market. What advice would you give to the ABC here to silence their critics? Well, it's not, happily, <laughs> it's not really for me to give them advice, but I think, you know, the ABC and the, and the BBC have a long, you know, helpful coexistence and because we're both the sort of similar model of public service broadcaster and actually of course the ABC distribute our radio blocks overnight here the BBC World Service you can hear on on terrestrial radio in Australia and I suppose 
looking at the you know the story of how and how it's evolved in the last year i think this period where the appointment of a new chairman and the chairman then being able to appoint a permanent md and to appoint permanent uh, senior management post right across the abc this is going to be a better and more stable year for the, for the for the abc than the last year has been and i i sort of say this coming from a public service broadcaster that itself has the odd crisis and meltdown. It has been known, let's be honest, the BBC is not, you know, has had huge reputationally challenging problems. You know, I've been in the BBC 20 years, I've just, just ticked over 20 years on the clock. This January. Thank you very much. And I, and I feel like I've lived through a whole bunch of BBC crises. And I think we've survived and actually arguably emerged stronger from most of them. And I very much hope that the same will be true of the ABC here in Australia. Something that also, and I think you touched on it, Joyce, uh, the words fake news how would you define fake news in this market well we i mean i've talked in the past about sort of three different sorts of fake news one is genuine ad fraud like clickbait you know writing stories specifically to draw audiences to poor quality content for to make ad revenues and the second type i think is you know political comment masquerading as news so you know, you often find sort of political advocacy sites that publish what they like to call news stories, but actually aren't, and they're just a basically a kind of slanted comment. And there's a place for that, but they, you shouldn't call it news because it's not news. And then the third is um, sort of genuine state-backed, uh, you know, invidious, destructive, uh, politically motivated content that is pumped out by by a state or a state-backed organisation specifically to destabilise or to create so dissent or you know and that might be kind of russian activity in the u.s elections or that could be you know we see that sometimes in um, you know north korea have done this you know we, we can think of different examples of that so i think those are the three main categories but i i agree that the term has become problematic because it's been so widely abused and i think the fact that Tr- president trump has used it so overtly to go after his critics or what he perceives to be his critics in the US media has made most journalists quite reluctant to use it, kind of use it in inverted commas. And certainly in the internal discussions in the BBC, you know, we, we had a, an editorial season beyond fake news at the end of last year and we have a beyond fake news curated page to draw together all the best of our fake news understanding and analysis. And certainly even amongst our journalists, there was a bit of pushback about I don't want to use this term I don't want to tag this story hashtag fake news you know all of which I completely understood and I think all journalists are really wary of it. I think about um, I saw a tweet and and I want to get into the digital publisher stuff but I I saw a tweet from Trump basically saying the reason BuzzFeed and and, and Verizon had made redundancies was because they were the fake news media and the fake news media was being exposed is is this idea of fake news a challenge for a brand like the BBC? Well I think that you know I mean I'm yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be impartial, but I just I'm allowed to call out that there's nonsense what what President Trump said because you know the problem is that uh, the supposedly failing New York Times just literally I think today as we're recording this has announced kind of record subscription revenues for the last year, and it just goes to show what that shows is that you can make money out of quality digital journalism whether you know uh, in the commercial space, but you have to have a product that is really well-defined, that is unarguably of high quality, and people need to, and a good mechanism for people to pay for it, which the New York Times have got. And I think that absolutely, you know, what's happened with with BuzzFeed, I'm I'm not a 
huge industry experts around this, but you, you can see very clearly that Facebook's changes to their news feed has really affected BuzzFeed adversely. I think even they acknowledge that. And so if you build a, a model of digital news where you're quite heavily reliant on one platform or revenue stream, you are just very vulnerable to shifts in the market. And I think with you know BuzzFeed, Vox, Mike, Huffington Post, um, a, n- a number of other organizations, some of which are reportedly getting into difficulties, others are doing well. We're just entering a phase of consolidation in those new digital players um, where hopefully we will end up, pro- we'll probably end up with a smaller number of operators, but they will be sustainable and that would be a good thing. Where do you see the future of digital publishing going in terms of business models that are actually sustainable and that can actually progress to the future? Because at the moment it's starting to feel like there isn't one strong, clear answer to that question. No, well, that, that's absolutely right, and I think that's why you know the BBC has a kind of mixed economy because we're we're you know one leg of it is a publicly funded PSB that has some licence fee funding and has uh, some money from the UK government actually supporting the language service, the, the 42 language services we broadcast in. But we also have a commercial news subsidiary, and BBC.com and the BBC World News Channel are commercial here in Australia, carry adverts, and the news channel is a subscription service. So I think you've either got to find a sort of diversified funding mechanism that pulls in a number, and that, and that might include, for example, the sort of philanthropic funding like the, you know, the Washington Post obviously taken a lot of money from Jeff Bezos or Jeff Bezos has bought the Washington Post. So there's, you've got to have a diverse funding model that isn't reliant on one single platform or revenue stream. But also I think that the subscription success of the New York Times demonstrate, or indeed the Financial Times or other kind of specialist Wall Street Journal, kind of specialist, often business end content that people will pay for. That demonstrates that quality news does have value. And I think one of the things we're trying to talk about this week in Australia is that we think news has value and we think that demonstrably consumers will pay for it through advertising or through subscription. And, and that that is an important thing for the industry to, to retain hold of and not, you know, as we're on this journey towards achieving sustainable models for, for continuing to produce it. Something that BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti said uh, sort of end, towards the end of last year was that he believed paywalls are bad for democracy and basically said that BuzzFeed would, would not be using paywalls at any time in the near future. I do wonder if he might be starting to change his mind, you know, obviously in the wake of recent news. But do you think paywalls are, are one of those way, ways forward? Well, I think if if the only access to quality independent or impartial news is via a paywall I think that is a problem because I think part of the ethos of a public service model is that there should be at some level some universal access to quality and independent news for both domestic and and internationally and so I think he's right in that extent that you don't want to have a monoculture where everything is paywalled or that nothing is paywalled. There has to be, you know, so it's interesting if you look at what The Guardian have done in the UK and internationally, actually they seem to be reaching, you know, that Guardian's a not-for-profit model. It's uh, owned by a, by, by a not-for-profit trust. It has this sort of tip jar system where it's voluntary donation system. It's not going to be paywalled. They seem to be making a good job making that work. You've got a New York Times, which is the sort of very heavily paywalled membership subscription model. And then you've got public service provider like the BBC, which is, you know, uh, free at the point of access. Certainly the World Service Radio and, the, and BBC.com are not in any sense paywall. World News' subscription channel here is slightly different. So it, there are a number of different models that can work, but I think that um, I, I think that 
you know, jo- Jonah's right in the, in the sense that nobody wants to see a world where the only access to news is for those who can afford to pay for it. But at mm. the same time, news has to have value, <laughs> right? So we're all trying to figure out how to balance those two things. I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the brands that people trust and, and that are probably very rigorous in their reporting, um, doing a lot of investigative work. I've often wondered, okay, what about those brands that are more lifestyle oriented or that, you know, people, I, I'm thinking of like local digital publishers at the moment who, who perhaps cover the news, but not in the same way. I do wonder if people would actually pay for it as in, I will give my money to this kind of journalism. It's very easy for, for someone like the New York Times or, or the Australian or, or the Sydney Morning Herald because they're legacy news brands. Uh, people are used to the reputation that comes with a newspaper. But do you think that it, a paywall or, or, or payment in some form, even its donations, can work for every publisher? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of interesting models out there. There's a kind of micropayment model we haven't talked about. So Apple have acquired a te- this texture platform, which I think is going to be more to do with kind of micropayment for, for each bit of content that you consume. And and I think, you know, if you're going to really sell it for money, you've got to have a, some kind of unique proposition that you are that you can deliver to a target group who have demonstrable ability and willingness to pay for it. I think that the... the the pay model doesn't work for the kind of middle ground. It doesn't work for the sort of generalist soggy middle because you can never identify and encourage people to actually pay for something that they can... There's a huge choice of getting it for free elsewhere. Um, so I think, you know, that that's, that's the huge challenge. But even for, like, in the UK, we've seen this... Uh, you know, we had a fantastic wi- women's oriented. Uh, content website called The Pool, which was like specifically writing and advocating for for women, women audiences and women writers. And that went to the wall just before Christmas. And, you know, it's really frustrating because I think everyone wanted to see a world where some of these startups that were actually targeting important underserved audiences could make a go of it and find a commercial way of of, of making that work. And it just goes to show it is really hard out there. Now, Jamie, I think that's all we've got time for, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. We've just announced yet another international speaker for Umbrella 360, Expedia Group's Media Solutions Global VP of Sales. Plus, we've also got the former speechwriter for the UK Labour Party, Professor Mark Steers. We're still putting together the lineup, but it's already looking pretty good. Uh, if you are interested, head on over to mumbrella360.com.au and check out the programme and pounce on those early bird tickets and save yourself 600 buckaroos. That's it for the Mumbrella cast this week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Toodle-poo.